today on the John Akerberg Show. How does the fine-tuning of the laws of the universe prove that God exists? Today you will hear how physicists have discovered that there are very important fundamental parameters, physical parameters of the universe that must fall within very precise ranges within slight tolerances. If those parameters were a little bit outside those ranges, by even a little bit, life would not be possible. We couldn't get stable galaxies. We couldn't form planetary systems around those galaxies. In some cases, we couldn't even get basic chemistry off the ground. Sometimes physicists talk about the Goldilocks universe in which we live that has fundamental forces that are not too strong, not too weak, they are just right. Why do such scientific discoveries and such a universe as ours point to the existence of an all-knowing, all-powerful God? My guest today is Dr. Stephen Meyer, who received his PhD in the philosophy of science from Cambridge University in England. And his book, The Return of the God Hypothesis, is a USA Today national bestseller. We invite you to hear this special edition of the John Ingeberg Show. Welcome to our program. I'm John Ankerberg, and my guest is philosopher of science, Dr. Stephen Meyer, who received his PhD from Cambridge University in England. Dr. Meyer has just recently published a USA Today national best-selling book called Return of the God Hypothesis, and I highly recommend this, which discusses evidence for God as the designing intelligence responsible for life and the universe. That's why we're doing these programs as well. Stephen, in our last few programs, you told a fascinating story, first of all, of how scientists discovered that our universe had a beginning. Folks, if you missed that, just go back online. You can watch it. Then you talked about why that discovery supports a God hypothesis, that God really exists and is involved in our world. Today, we're going to look at a second discovery that is bringing the God hypothesis back into currency today among some of the most prominent scientists of the last century. One such example is the famed Cambridge University astrophysicist Fred Hoyle. He started out as a very staunch atheist, and then he changed his mind based on the discoveries about the origin and structure of the universe, what's ironical, that he himself made. Hoyle discovered something known as the fine-tuning of the universe. So, Stephen, can you first describe what exactly physicists mean by fine-tuning and give us a couple examples of it? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, physicists have discovered that there are very important fundamental parameters, physical parameters of the universe that must fall within very precise ranges or within slight tolerances, such that if the, those parameters were a little bit outside those ranges, uh, by even a little bit, life would not be possible. We couldn't get stable galaxies. We couldn't uh, form planetary systems around that, those galaxies. In some cases, we couldn't even get basic chemistry off the ground. Anything more than hydrogen atoms would be impossible unless you got these parameters just right. So oftentimes, physicists talk about a Goldilocks universe where the fundamental forces are not too strong, not too weak. 
the, uh, the force that causes the expansion universe is not too strong or too weak. The masses of the elementary particles are not too heavy, not too light. Uh, the speed of light is not too fast, not too slow. Everything falls within this sweet spot. This Everything is just right, right. Just right, as in the Goldilocks and the Three Bears story. Uh, one physicist, Luke Barnes, a uh, 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 physicist from Australia, has written a very important book called The Fortunate Universe. And he's emphasizing this very just right character of all these different physical parameters. So a couple examples. The, uh, the force of gravity turns out to be very important. If it's a little bit stronger, uh, then the, the stars would burn up too quickly and we would never get the heavy elements that form within the stars. If it's a little weaker, the atoms within the stars wouldn't overcome electromagnetic repulsion and would never form into heavier elements that are needed, for example, carbon. Um, an, another example is the mass of the quark, one of the elementary particles. A little lighter, bad result, a little heavier, bad result. And in each case, the ranges in which the sweet spot resides are extremely small in relation to the possible range of, of, of values or strengths of these parameters. Yeah. So let's go back and talk about Fred Hoyle for a moment. What was his role in discovering some of those fine-tuning parameters and how one of them rocked his worldview and led him to abandon atheism and affirm the existence of some kind of super intellect behind the universe. First of all, who was Sir Frederick Hoyle and what role did he play discovering some of the most important fine-tuning parameters? Well, you'll remember we encountered Sir Fred Hoyle, uh, Professor Hoyle, in the previous discussion of the Big Bang. That's right. Because he formulated uh, an alternative hypothesis to the Big Bang because he was, uh, as he put it, metaphysically opposed to the idea that the universe should have a beginning. He was quite explicit that he thought the Big Bang had clear theistic implications. He was a committed philosophical naturalist or atheist. Very committed. And uh, so, so he wanted to come up with a theory that would preserve his naturalistic, no-God worldview. And the steady state was the theory he came up with, later refuted uh, by the discovery of the cosmic background radiation, which we discussed in a previous episode. But Hoyle was very committed initially in his career to that philosophical perspective of a more uh, materialistic or atheistic perspective. But he was working in the 1950s on trying to explain a puzzle that greatly interested him, which was how do we explain the abundance of carbon in our universe? And for all intents and purposes, he realized that carbon was essential for life. Carbon forms long chain-like molecules that can store information. For example, in the, the DNA molecule, it stores information and it has a lot of carbon in it. So he realized that carbon was essential for life, but it was very hard to conceive how carbon might have originated. And the standard way of thinking about the origination of heavy chemical elements was that they would gain elementary particles one at a time and gradually build from simple elements like hydrogen and helium up to more complex elements like carbon. Carbon has an atomic weight of 12. And so I have a little graphic to yeah. show that shows the problem. And the, there was a, uh, a, a term of art that the physicists came up with to describe the problem. They called yeah. it the five nucleon crevasse. And what they realized was that if you added a proton or a neutron, protons and neutrons are also called uh, nucleons. So if you add one of those things one at a time, 
you can get from hydrogen to helium, no problem. But then if you add one more proton or neutron and have an element with, with, with five nucleons, those are highly unstable and they, they fall apart very quickly. They have a very short half-life. So it was really hard to imagine how you got from helium with an atomic weight of four to carbon with an atomic weight of 12. So one theory was we'll combine three helium molecules, each with atomic weight four, and we'll get to 12. But getting three to collide all at the same time was astronomically improbable, and no one thought that was plausible. So Hoyle came up with the idea that, well, maybe you could get two heliums to combine to make a beryllium, atomic weight eight, and then that beryllium would separately combine with a helium. And then you'd get a carbon molecule, atomic weight 12. Voila, problem solved, except for one thing. When he did the calculations on the energies associated with those uh, constituent parts of a carbon, right. he found that the resulting carbon had an energy level that was above the energy level of the carbons we most typically observe. And it had a precise value, 7.65 MeV. And so he went out to Caltech and he pigeonholed a, a physicist out there named Willie Fowler. And he said, would you do some experiments of nuclear, uh, you know, basically nuclear physics experiments to see if you can find a carbon that has this excited energy level called a resonance. And we found some actual audio recordings of interactions between Hoyle and these guys and, and Willie Fowler talking about what a nut job he thought Hoyle was at first. But he was finally persuaded to do the experiment, and lo and behold, he found a carbon with exactly that resonance, the one that Hoyle had predicted with that level of precision. They were blown away. And Hoyle was blown away because it implied very difficult to make carbon, but there is a way to do it. And then he got thinking about, well, what would have to happen inside the stars for, for uh, this combination to occur to develop a carbon? And he realized that, well, for the beryllium and the helium to come together, they'd have to overcome an electromagnetic repulsion, which means that gravity would have to be very precise in its strength to heat things up enough to overcome that repulsion. And that meant that gravity had to be fine-tuned. And in fact, here's the exact problem. If the gravitational attraction is too weak inside the star, the temperature won't get high enough for those two atoms to combine sufficiently often to generate an abundant supply of carbon. On the other hand, if the gravitational attraction is too strong, what's called nucleosynthesis will happen much too quickly, cause the star to burn up, and you don't get heavy elements. Yeah. And the tolerance was very, very small, a very fine um, a sweet spot in relation to the natural range of values. Um, big exponential number, I think it's 1 in 10 to the 35th, wow. the, the fine-tuning that's required. And then Hoyle realized, but to get the gravity right, there had to be a, a, a whole bunch of other fine-tuning parameters that had to be just right. And so later, as he was reflecting on his own discovery and subsequent discoveries of other fine-tuning parameters that physicists revealed, he was quoted as saying, a common sense interpretation of the data suggests that a super intellect has monkeyed with physics and chemistry in order to make life possible. He says there are no random forces in nature. Everything is finely tuned, and that suggests a fine tuner. And so he shifted from his earlier strident clear. atheism yep. to a kind of proto-theism. Mm -hmm. And uh, I had the opportunity my first or second year in grad school 
to, uh, to meet and talk with Hoyle. He gave a talk on the origin of life. Mm -hmm. And I told him about some of the things that I was thinking about as far as the digital code and DNA, how that pointed to a designing intelligence. And we were walking from the, uh, the auditorium where he'd given the talk back to one of the colleges for a reception. And when he heard me say intelligence, he pulled me aside and, and he said, here, walk with me. And he said, yeah, there's no question that if we could invoke an intelligence, it would explain a lot about what we see both in the universe and wow. in life. Wow. So we had a major shift of worldview as a result of his own discoveries about fine-tuning. All right. The fine-tuning parameters that Hoyle discovered weren't the only ones that physicists have discovered. Can you describe some other specially dramatic or precise examples of cosmic fine-tuning? Sure. There, there's a couple different classes of fine-tuning evidence. Um, one has to do with the strength of these fundamental forces gravity, electromagnetism, the strong and weak nuclear forces. And all those forces must fall within very narrow ranges to allow, for example, the production of, of life essential chemicals or even very basic chemistry of any kind. Um, and often the ratios between those forces are critical as well. But in addition to that, there's other types of fine-tuning that relate to the initial conditions of the universe, the configuration of matter and energy at the very beginning. We live in a universe that's fairly nicely ordered. We have these beautiful spiral galaxies, and inside the galaxies there are solar systems, and in our solar system we have uh, everything arranged in just the right distances, and Earth has the right axial tilt from the sun and so forth to allow for the possibility of life. But getting even orderly galaxies depends upon a highly ordered set of initial conditions. Um, you may remember that uh, in the old days, if um, civil engineers were building a tunnel through a mountainside, their term of art was they would configure a charge. They would set up a dynamite charge, but they would put it at just the right angle in just the right place so the hole would be blown through the mountain in just the right way so that they could put the road where they wanted it. And in the same way, the arrangement of matter and energy had to be highly configured in a very specific way at the beginning of the universe to produce the highly ordered structures that we see today. The order that we have today is reflective of an even greater order at the beginning of the universe. And there's a great physicist from uh, Britain, Sir Roger Penrose, who's made calculations as to the degree of fine-tuning that would have been required in the configuration of the initial conditions of the universe. It's called the initial entropy fine-tuning. And the number he's derived has just blown people's minds. That initial configuration of matter and energy is fine-tuned to one part in 10 to the 10th power raised uh, to the 123rd power. It's called a hyper-exponential number. 1 in 10 to the 10 raised to the 123. So that's a mind-blowing degree of precision. Another fine-tuning parameter, and this is a, maybe a little bit easier to illustrate, is the fine-tuning required to get the universe to expand at the right rate so that stable galaxies and planetary systems can form and so that the universe doesn't collapse back on itself on the one hand or dissipate into a kind of cold heat death on the other. That's known as the cosmological constant, which we've been discussing, and the fine-tuning associated with the cosmological constant that we have in our universe, the force of outward push, is one part in 10 to the 90th power. That's an accepted number and among physicists. And to put that in context, we could uh, think about the fact that there are about 10 to the 80th elementary particles, electrons and protons and quarks and so forth, in our visible universe. So getting the right 
degree of outward push for the cosmological constant would be equivalent to trying to find blindfolded, floating in free space, one marked elementary particle out of all the particles in our universe. But we wouldn't just have to be looking in our universe, but instead 10 billion universes our size for one marked elementary particle. That's the degree of precision or correspondingly the improbability associated with getting the fine-tuning right for just that one parameter of the cosmological constant. Yeah, you have to do it quickly too. At the right time at least, yeah. yeah. <clears throat> Walk us through the logic of the design inference and how it explains the evidence of cosmic fine-tuning. Well, as Fred Hoyle has pointed out, he said that a common-sense interpretation of the fine-tuning suggests a superintellect. Fine-tuning suggests a fine-tuner. There's another great Cambridge physicist who had a late-in-life religious conversion and became an Anglican priest. Uh, his name was John Polkinghorne, now Sir John Polkinghorne, recently deceased. And Polkinghorne had this wonderful visual illustration that he would use to get across the idea of a fine-tuning. He asked you to imagine that you were going out into space and you would dock at a space station and this happened to be the space station where the universe-creating machine resided. And you would go into the control room, and there in the control room, there would be all kinds of dials and knobs and sliders, and each one would be set to a very particular setting. Strength of gravity had a very precise setting. And if you move that one click this way or that way, then for different reasons, the universe would cease to be life-friendly. And with each of these parameters, you had the same problem. One click this way or that way, and, and life would not be possible. And Polkinghorne, when he gave lectures on this, would say, well, he'd ask his audience, what do you make of this? I had the opportunity to interview him one time in Portland, and I said, well, Sir John, what do you make of it? And in his very high Oxbridge accent, he said, well, I don't say that the atheists are stupid. I just say that theism provides a more satisfying explanation. <laughs> and so there's something about fine-tuning, which intuitively suggests intelligent design. And I have a colleague, William Dembski, who's developed a theory of design detection with a famous work published at Cambridge University Press called the Design Inference. And what Dembski shows is that we detect design when two different things are present at the same time. One is improbability, and all the fine-tuning parameters are extremely, it's, in, it's extremely improbable that we get those right randomly in the universe. But Dembski says improbability alone is not enough, and he illustrates this with a great example. He asks you to imagine that you're looking at the faces on Mount Rushmore, and immediately you think, oh, well, a, scu a sculptor was responsible for those faces. And Dembski says, okay, but why? And you say, well, it'd be very improbable for wind and erosion to make those faces. And he says, yeah, that's right. It's a, this is a very improbable shape. But, that's the, but the pile of rocks at the bottom of the hill is also in an improbable configuration, and we don't want to say that those are designed in exactly that, that configuration. So what else is present in the, in the faces on the mountain? And he says the answer is what he calls a specification, a, a, a pattern that matches our experience or performs a function. It has significance in some way that we can recognize from our independent experience. Case of Mount Rushmore, that's pretty obvious that it does that because we recognize those faces from the independent experience of seeing the human face and even the faces of presidents on a mountain. Now shift that example just a little bit. Um, imagine that you have a, a combination lock. Yep. And I used to do this little thought experiment with my students. And I like it, yep. I would uh, 
pass a combination lock around in class. And I would pretend that what I was trying to prove was that the fine tuning was too improbable to happen by chance. And that that was the basis of my argument for design. And so I passed the combination lock around and I have different students try to open the combination by chance alone. Right, left, right. I even tell them, go right, left, right. And they try and try again and they failed. One student failed, next student failed, next student failed. But finally I get to about the fourth student and the student will go right, left, right, and then pop the lock open. The students would all hoot and howl at me like they'd refuted my thought experiment because, <laughs> look, it just happened by chance. And then I'd just kind of sit there looking embarrassed. I'd feign embarrassment. And then finally, someone would almost always say, wait a minute, was, that for, was he for real? Because when you do the odds and it's one in 64,000 to get it right, and then there's only a few seconds to do it, and, and people would then say, was he a setup? Was that a plant? And the students start accusing me of, of, and I'd say, why would I do that? But then I'd walk over to the student and say, well, was that a, was that a setup job? And he'd look kind of sheepish for a minute, and then he'd fish into his pocket, give the combination. And of course, I had set it up. I'd given him the combination in advance. And so then I'd tell the students the real uh, point of the, of, of, the, of, the, of the gag, which is that you detected design. You started to su suspect me of cheating because not only did you witness a highly probable event, but there was also a pattern match. There was a specification that the combination, those three turns, matched the independent requirements for opening the lock that we could specify on a piece of paper independently of the event. And so we had a small probability event that was also specified in a way to perform a function, to achieve something, in this case, open the lock. And that's what we have going on with the fine tuning. Small probabilities plus specification in our universal experience indicates design. And in the case of the fine tuning, what we have is a set of highly improbable parameters that are jointly necessary to achieve a very significant outcome, which is the production of life in the universe. So they perform a functional outcome. And the conjunction of those two things triggers an awareness in the human mind of the action of another mind, of a designing intelligence. And that's why so many physicists have said, as Paul Davies has said, great physicists, the impression of design is overwhelming when he's talking about the fine tuning. Yeah. Folks, I hope that you're enjoying what you're hearing. Next week, we're going to look at some objections to the idea that cosmic fine-tuning points to intelligent design. That's what we've been talking about. Does it or doesn't this point to intelligent design? So far, you heard all the reasons why we think it does point to that. But we're going to talk about a very popular idea that you hear about almost all the time. It's the popular idea known as the multiverse hypothesis. And I want you to tune in to see how Dr. Meyer responds to these objections and whether his case for God can withstand challenges from popular objections to it. So I hope that you'll join us, but uh, please stay tuned because I have a personal word for you in just a moment. Stay tuned. John will be right back. Next week on The John Ankerberg Show. Well, let's talk about the current go-to alternative materialistic explanation for the fine-tuning, and that's the multiverse. What is the multiverse hypothesis, and how does it purport to explain the origin of the cosmic fine-tuning that we see all around us? Well, the multiverse hypothesis is, is the idea that there are billions and billions and billions of other universes out there 
causally disconnected from our own, after all, universe is a self-contained system, and that there are so many of these other universes, each with their own set of fine-tuning parameters and each set of initial conditions, that a universe with just the right combination of parameters would have had to arise somewhere. Even if it's very improbable, there's enough universes to render it probable somewhere, and we just happen to be in that lucky universe. Our goal is to present the evidence for the gospel worldwide and to encourage Christians in their walk with the Lord. This program is sponsored by the John Ankerberg Show Ministries and is made possible by the grace of God and your faithful prayers and gifts.